powerful. I mean, as we're in our series, Reverb, how's everybody doing, by the way? Man, I tell you what, Dave has made me feel like a genius for hiring him. I mean, he's so good. I mean, amazing. I, I got to go on, one, I got to go on vacation. I mean, that was amazing. Um, but then to just hear him uh, open up the Word of God last week and his passion. I mean, Leslie was right when she was talking about it last week. Like, you are going to leave an encounter with Dave loving Jesus more. And if you don't know Jesus, you're going to want to know who he is just by the way that God uses him and has leveraged his life. And we're so glad to have him on staff. And thank you so much for, um, for teaching last week and uh, giving me a week off. But man, I'm excited about today. If you haven't been in the Reverb series, I mean, the whole idea in the Reverb series is... This is, we get to see reverb in Acts chapter 17. We get to see the gospel moving out. Paul didn't create the story of redemption, but he is leading with the story of redemption. He's doing it creatively in Athens at the Areopagus to all these Stoic philosophers, all these Epicurean philosophers, all these people that are there that are battering around all of these ideas. It's one of those beautiful passages where we actually get to see practically how this thing works out. And if you haven't been with us in the Reverb series, the idea is that we don't create the melody. Like in a musical sense, Reverb just repeats this sound. Like Seth beautifully today had some Reverb on his slide guitar and it was amazing, wasn't it? I mean, you're listening to it and going, that's amazing. It's stretching the sound. It's, it's repeating the sound. We don't create the song of redemption, but as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are the ambassadors that have received this grace and mercy and love and approval because of the cross of Jesus Christ, because of his death, burial, and resurrection. Our lives have changed. And his love, the love that's poured out onto us, is it compels us to push that love outward, to push that message outward so that others would understand that Jesus saves and nothing else does. We were meant to be with him and him alone. We would be city, a city on a hill. A light shining, reflecting his glory. We don't create the glory. We don't create the redemption. We can't save anyone, but we can reflect that salvation to the world. And we get to see it here in Acts chapter 17. Now, in the, in the, in the first four weeks, if I was going to title this series, it would be Speak Boldly. Now, that's where people get nervous. You know, in this whole holistic idea of evangelism that we're calling Reverb, Speaking the gospel, like using our mouths and saying something, that's a whole different ballgame, isn't it? Because that's, that's the thing that makes us, you know, a little bit nervous. Kind of, that's where the sweaty palms come from. And I think if we just left it on the last few weeks, which we've been talking about our lives being reverb, like the way that we live our lives, that people would see us. And some people would use this term, which is incomplete in some ways, that we could preach the gospel without saying a word. In other words, they would see our lives. They would see this city on a hill. They would see how we, you know, we, we operate in our homes. They would see the things that we do. They would see our lives. They would see that we're anchored to something different, which is true. But it's incomplete, right? It's a great phrase. It's a good sentiment to preach the gospel without saying a word. But the apostle Paul, guess what he would do? He would argue with you. Because he went and he preached the gospel. He opened his mouth and he prayed. In Ephesians chapter 6, he prayed. He said, pray for me that when I open my mouth that I will speak boldly the gospel for which I am in chains. He knew that speaking was essential. Taking the word of God and using the leverage that you've got with your lives. And the second piece to this is to speak. So three weeks, we're going to talk about speaking boldly. And what a way to launch into it with Acts chapter 17. One of the things that we see the Apostle Paul do in, in this passage, and, and this is what's powerful about today. And I'm, I, if you can't tell, I'm excited. I think Dave's got me excited too. But... I really, this week, I, it, I was so encouraged because evangelism is not easy. 
Telling people about Jesus is not easy. Understanding how I'm going to enter into each individual situation. But we're going to understand, it, by the end of this, this, this passage, why the Apostle Paul was so effective. And he was effective. There's a reason that so many miles away and so many years later, we sit in here in Jacksonville Beach singing about the resurrecting king. Right? The Apostle Paul had a lot to do with carrying and reflecting the story of Jesus to the rest of the world. But that effectiveness doesn't just sit in the place of he was a good theologian, he was a good preacher, that's what he did by trade, I'm not a preacher, or I'm a teacher. But what God did in him is the same thing that he's done inside of us and we're going to know by the end of today what made him so effective. One of the things that made him effective, and this is if you want to get the, you know, the gist of today right at the beginning, is his heavenly perspective. His eyes were open. He had a bigger and wider lens. He... he had received something and it changed his life completely. It wasn't that he just had inner peace. It wasn't that all of a sudden he received a healing. It wasn't all of a sudden he was a better person. He was more humble and then he went about his own agenda. No, his whole life was changed and he had a new agenda that wasn't his agenda, a bigger agenda, the big story of God that he was invited into. Everything changed for him and his vision changed. His perspective changed. And when it comes to speaking to people, we have to have perspective, don't we? Like think about going into any situation, talking to somebody, not even thinking about talking to somebody about Jesus, but about anything. Like launching into a conversation with somebody without knowing a little bit of background can be dangerous. Like you can go in in a good mood, all happy and going, hey man, what are you doing? How are things going? And you find out that somebody's dog died and you, you know, you've been you know, all in a good mood and you haven't been able to approach them in a good, you know, a good way. In any situation, any circumstance, we want to know the surrounding situation. We want to love people well and know what's going on with them. Well, the Apostle Paul spiritually had an amazing perspective. And having the wrong perspective, you can make some pretty poor decisions, right? I mean, if you have a limited, like you think you know, but you don't really know, and then you go into a situation. You know, when I was, when I was about to get married, I had two jobs. Because guys don't really plan the wedding. Maybe nowadays they do. They do, you know, they do elaborate engagements too. I don't know. I just, it's a whole different ball game. I mean, I love my, my future wife and I wanted to, you know, get the sweet ring and do all the stuff. But man, people do all kinds of crazy dances and put them on YouTube. It's amazing. But I had two jobs. One was be at the end of the aisle and profess my love and say, I will be with you forever. You are, I choose you above everybody else. Nobody else wins. You win. I love you. You love me. Let's do this thing. I had to show up for that and I had to plan the honeymoon. And I had to do it on a limited budget. I mean, I don't know what it's, you know, what you, when you're 22, 23, you don't have lots of cash. Maybe some of you did, but I did, didn't have any. Um, and so I had to go plan a honeymoon. And back in those days, we went into a place called a travel agency. I don't even, do those even exist? I mean, I don't even know. Like, I had to call somebody with a phone that was attached to a wall and make an appointment with somebody. It was a whole different thing. There was dinosaurs in the office. It was crazy. But I went in there, and she pulls out all these brochures, and they're on paper. Like, brochures, brochures even exist. And there's pictures on the brochures. And she's showing me all the stuff that I can do and places I can go. And uh, we wanted to go to Jamaica. So she shows me sandals. She says, this is very popular. A lot of people go here. And I'm like, man, sandals looks amazing. Let's do that. How much does it cost? She tells me how much it costs. I said, we can't do sandals. Show me something else. And she shows me another brochure and it's Sea Garden. And she says, a lot of people are picking this because it's, it's budget friendly. 
And I was like, the pictures look the same to me. I am a genius. Let's do Sea Garden. There's no difference at all. This looks, you know, cool. I love sandals. But Sea Garden, why, aren't, why isn't everybody picking Sea Garden? And on my 4 by 8 brochure, I was making a decision to spend thousands of dollars to go somewhere in Jamaica that I have never been before without any perspective other than the two-dimensional sheet of paper that I've got. Nowadays, we got Google. We're going to find out what's going on down there, right? But I didn't know. And when I showed up, what I found out very quickly is that Sea Garden was not much like sandals at all. And also, it was right next to sandals. So I had to look at sandals the entire time I was there. In fact, the pictures that I was seeing in the Sea Garden brochure of the guy jet skiing was not from Sea Garden. That was the sandals guy jet skiing. The umbrella drink person, that was the sandals person. The person snorkeling, they were sandals people. They just happened to get in the shot of the Sea Garden brochure. It didn't have the air conditioning like, like sandals. It didn't have the food like sandals. It smelled more like patchouli oil and granola and marijuana. And it just was a different place. Now, I had an amazing time. I was with the woman that I loved. But I had a limited view and a limited perspective on the, on the brochure. And for you and for me, we go into... The world, many times, without our spiritual eyes, what the Apostle Paul is trying to do in a passage, and I'll go back to Ephesians because we've been talking about what it looks like for your life to change in such a way that it shines a big, bright, beautiful light on Jesus. And Ephesians is a great, great story and a great passage and a great epistle for us to see that because the Apostle Paul says in the beginning, I want your eyes to be open in Ephesians 1. Open the eyes of their heart. I pray that your eyes will be open, that you will be able to see with spiritual eyes, that everything will be transformed, that you'll have a new compass, something beyond the brochure, something beyond the limited view that most people have on planet Earth. Because when, you, when I send you out, you're going to need it. And it culminates and begins to culminate in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says you need to grow up. He's telling the, the body of Christ, says, you need to grow up. And you know one way you're going to grow up? You're going to get together, and you're going to speak what? You're going to speak truth in love. You're not just going to speak truth, and you're not just going to go out loving people. You're going to speak truth in love. It's not the brochure of love, and it's not the brochure of truth. It is a holistic, heavenly view of people where we speak truth in love. Because if we have a limited perspective, if we have a, a, a small window... In, in the way that we see things. This is how we're ineffective as evangelists and how I've been ineffective and I'm sure some of you have. Sometimes we go, and it depends on the type of person, right? It's, it, you, anywhere on the spectrum. Some people are love people, some people are truth people. You know what I'm saying? So you've got some people that, hey, let's just love people well. And we should love people. It's just incomplete. Let's just love them. Let's, let's be accepting. Let's, you know, let's not worry so much about truth. We don't need to. We can, we can accept some of the things that they're accepting. We can do some of the things that they're doing. We can, we can affirm some of the things that they're affirming. And we need to love them into the kingdom of God. That's how we're going to do it. We're going to love them. And I'm telling you right now, that will not be effective. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we, we talk about truth. And there's somebody that goes in with all truth. And, and it's just, this is how they come. They come with, you know, hey, if you were going to die tonight, where would you go? And that's the, fir- that's the first thing out of their mouth in any conversation. Do you know Jesus? It's like the first thing out of their mouth. Where are you spiritually? That's not the initial conversation that you have with somebody. That's not like day one. I'm in Walgreens. I'm at the counter. I'm checking out. Hey, I noticed that you were standing there. If you were going to die tonight, do you know that where you would go? You know, do you understand the eternal flames of hell? I mean, there's truth to all of those statements. But there's a balance that goes beyond just a spectrum. Can somebody get me another mic, maybe? You got it right there. I don't know if this one's going to last. 
Thank you. I know you don't like this, Mike, honey. She says, I start acting like a stand-up comedian. So there I was. Um, but do you, see the, the, do you see what I'm saying? Do you, do, you, do, you get, do you get the idea that there's this eternal perspective and there's something, this is a whole life. When you become a believer, when you become a believer, everything changes. You don't just get healed and restored and redeemed to go back to your own agenda. The Apostle Paul, every, when he, when we, what we read and the why, why the Apostle Paul does what he does is everything has changed for him. His lens has changed. His compass has changed. His compass, everything that he does, he has a wide-eyed view of what life is all about and everything had changed for him. So if you got your Bible, turn with me to this passage that's beautifully read by Shelley. It, it, it is incredible because in it, we find exactly what makes him effective. And I don't know about you, but, but when I became a Christian, I was an ineffective evangelist. I mean, I was excited, and, and I, but I didn't know what, how to approach anything. Now, here's the bad news. God never comes and says, here's the ABCs of how to evangelize. You can look here, you can write them down. You do these things, people gonna get saved. No, he changes everything about who you are. He changes your character. He changes your wisdom and discernment so that in any situation, and Paul's got a specific situation right here, that we'll be able to react by the power of the Holy Spirit and meet people where they are. And so when we see the, the, this passage, there's four things that I want you to see. Where Paul went, how he felt, what he saw, and what he did. So where he went, what he felt, what he saw, and what he did. And in the midst of this, we're going to see just how effective the Apostle Paul was. So if you, if you look at Acts chapter 17, we started in 16 and we'll start there now. So where did he go? It says, now why Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Now he's waiting for... Um, his boys he's been ministering with um, and he's, he's been traveling and he gets there before he has to leave town because things are getting a little bit heated. You know, not everybody always likes to hear the message of Jesus. So some of the people get saved and some of the people don't. And he takes off to Athens before the rest of his crew and he's gonna be waiting for them. Now, he doesn't just wait and do nothing. He's not passive and thinking, hey, I'll just wait till they get here. But his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, but also he did it in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So he did not waste his time in any way. Now, the, the simplicity of this, where did he go? Look where he went. Well, he always went to the synagogue, but guess, guess where else he went? He went to the marketplace. He went, he went public. I always say this because I think we, we think our, our faith is supposed to be private. You know, we, we, I, I, get, I don't want to push my faith on anybody. I don't want to do anything that will disrupt anybody's world. I receive something from Jesus. People need to make their own choice. The Holy Spirit, I can't save anybody. God is sovereign. He's going to save them when he wants to save them. I'm going to keep my faith private. I don't want to bring that to the marketplace. I don't want to bring that to the workplace. Now, before we even understand how, how broad the marketplace was here and compared to, to our world, the marketplace was everything. Athens was, not, it was no longer the capital of the world. It was at one time, but it was the, still the cultural center of the world. I mean, you had everything there. And the marketplace is where everything happened. It wasn't just the Avenues Mall where goods and you know, services are, does the Avenues Mall still exist? I don't even know. Um, um, actually, my kids love like a, going to a mall. It's, it's, like a, it's like a historical experience. What is this strange thing I'm looking at? 
but it's, it's not that type of marketplace. This is where, if you had an idea, if you needed to Google something, you couldn't Google it because there was no internet. You went there because the exchange of ideas, the exchange of information, the exchange of philosophy was happening there in Athens. That's where the movies were. That's where the art was. That's where everybody did everything. And that's where Paul went, right into the center of it where everybody's having these discussions. You could hear that in the reading, as Shelley was reading. You know, you got the, the, uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics that are in there, you know, having discussions, having arguments, trying to figure out what is life about? Why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing Why we're here? And where are we going when we die? I mean, they're having those type of conversations. And here you've got the Apostle Paul who knows the answer to all three of those questions entering into Athens, but he went public. He was going to speak. He was going to, he was going to tell them where they were wrong but he was gonna do it creatively. He was going to lead them to life, but he was gonna do it creatively, but he went public. Do you get that? Like, I think sometimes we we wonder, what should I do in my workplace? Should I be bringing my faith with me? The answer to that question is absolutely yes. And I I think, well, then the, the other question is, how do we do that? And there's this passage, I love it in 2 Kings. I think actually Mike Berry covered this. Was, did you cover Naaman? I think, yeah, you preached on Naaman. So on the back half of the story of Naaman in 2 Kings, um, you've, you've got this guy who is the, the, the military prime minister of Syria, who was, which was arguably the most powerful nation in the world at the time. Military prime minister. And he needs to be healed, ends up in Israel. Elisha heals him. That's, that's, there's a lot more story. If you want to listen to that entire story, Mike Berry did a great talk on it you know, in the Come and Listen series, you can go listen to it. But on the backside of that, after Naaman is healed, so you've got this military prime minister who was a pagan idol worshiper, pagan country, he's healed by the God of the universe, by Israel's God. And all of a sudden, his life has changed. He's, he's, everything's been transformed. Now he's like, okay, this is real. I had leprosy and now I don't. God is real, their God is real, This God is not, everything's changed. Here's two things that he did not do when he goes back to his job, goes back to his marketplace, goes back to his world. Here's what he didn't do. He didn't go to Elisha and say, can I stay here with all the other Christians? I don't wanna go back to all the naughty, naughty back in Syria. I don't wanna go back to all the dirty people there that are worshiping idols and doing all this awful stuff. I just wanna stay here in the comfort of all the church people. He didn't do that. And the other thing that he didn't do is he didn't go back into his job the way that he did before. He didn't just go, okay, I've been healed, I've been redeemed, I've been restored, so everything's all good. I'm just gonna go back to business as usual, continue day by day going arm in arm with the king into the temple of Ramon, bowing before a foreign god, worshiping and and making sacrifices. He didn't do that either. But this is what he, this is what's so crazy. This is how God disrupts you because none of us would do, we would do one of the other of those things. That's, that's more commonplace. Hang out with just the church people or go back and just, hey, I can do whatever I want. I'm gonna go back to my job and live the way that I want. But this is what he does. He asks Elisha, he says, hey, forgive me, but I'm gonna go back to my job. I'm gonna, and every day I'm gonna have to go into the temple, but here's what I'm gonna do. This is what I wanna do. Get two donkeys with two truckloads of dirt from Israel and we're gonna haul it back all the way to Syria. We're gonna bring this dirt from Israel, God dirt. And when I go in, and this is the whole idea, do you see what's going on? He's literally bringing his faith with him to his job. And he says, when I go into the temple, guess what he's gonna have to do? He's gonna have his servants lay that dirt down. And when when I'm in there and I have to do my job, I gotta go arm in arm with the king to worship the God of Rimon, but I'm not gonna worship the God of Rimon. We're gonna put the dirt down. When I make sacrifices, I'm gonna be making the sacrifices to God. And it was public. People knew something had changed. 
Do you love that? He literally brought his, he brought God with him to work. He literally brought the dirt from Israel to his job. And it was public. People saw it. People knew. So what does that mean for you and me? I mean, does that mean we got to wear the Tim Tebow eye black every time we go into the cubicle? I don't know. It's different in every situation. But he did. He went and he went, he went public with it. You know, this week I was working, doing a bathroom reno- renovation on a rental property, which I don't recommend for a novice. Um, Danny Strickland helped me with it. Danny, I know you're on vacation. If you're listening to the stream, I love you, bless you. I owe you money uh, and I'll pay you soon. Um, but we had a plumbing issue and it was all my fault. I broke some plumbing underneath the house in a horrible spot. And because COVID is awful and terrible, everything was closed. We couldn't get any plumbing parts, which we could have fixed it pretty quick. So I had to call a 24 hour plumber. Now that's painful. Everybody knows you call in a plumber at 10 o'clock at night, it's going to cost you. Um, so we call this, this guy, we, well, we call one guy and he, he couldn't do it. And then we call this other guy, he comes and he comes, his truck is shiny and nice. I mean, you, I, sometimes plumbers, I don't know, anybody, plumbers, he rolls up in a nice truck. He's dressed nice, got a nice haircut. He looks like he's in shape. And I'm like, this guy's got it all together. I mean, sometimes the plumber, you know what I'm saying? His clothes kind of here, you know, hey, don't, don't, don't bend over that way. Um, it's a, it, this guy was not that guy. And he did, I couldn't believe it. This was in a horrible spot in my house where the, the crawl space was terrible. He had to move away like skeletons of possums, which I knew had died under the house, but we couldn't get to him. We had to move out of the house when that happened, by the way, because it smelled bad and we couldn't get to it. But he got to it, moved all that out of the way, fixes the thing very quickly. And then we get done and we're over by his van, which was very clean and neat. I noticed things like that because I'm like, man, he is squared away. And in the conversation, we're just talking. And we had been talking the whole time. And I've been yelling at him under the house going, hey, do you need this? He's like, yeah. No. We've been talking. And he'd been telling me a little bit about his life. And right before we're about to end, he starts talking about the neighbor. He said, hey, about two blocks away, he goes, there's a church called The Well. And he goes, that's, that's where I go to church. And he left it there. And I just thought, I know what my man's doing. He brought his dirt to work with him. He wasn't going to let it go. One, he showed up and he was like, I'm going to do the best job ever because he did. Second thing he did is he, he only charged me the, he just felt bad for me because he could see what was going on. He had no idea that I was a pastor because I didn't bring my dirt that day. And he, he, he just was nice. Charged me the trip charge, said, you know, don't worry about it because COVID's terrible. I haven't really blessed anybody this week. You know, I'm just going to charge you this. And I was like, thank you, Lord. And, and then that's when he, he entered in. You know, I go to this church. I go to the well. I said, man, that's, that's awesome. I know, I, know, I know the well. It's a couple blocks away. Tone, pastor. He's like, how do you know Tone? I said, I'm a pastor in Jack's Beach. And, he, and then you start that conversation. But I left that thinking he didn't have to mention anything about his church. And he, I knew that it's not easy in those comments. He did it on purpose. He was bringing, he was, he was like, I'm going to enter into this situation creatively in the best way that I know how. I'm going to get done with this. I did a good job. And now I'm going to drop some Jesus into the conversation. And he did. And then he found out I was a Christian. We're like, yay, let's hug. And it was good. But I, I, I kept thinking for anybody, any house that he shows up to, that's his mode. And we talked about it a little bit because I got into my sermon and starts, hey man, I'm preaching on this and you're awesome. And I'm probably going to use it. His name, name is Dwayne James, by the way. He works for Egerton Plumbing. If you want an amazing plumber, please, please call Dwayne. He is awesome. But that's what I'm talking about. It went, he goes, you go public. So what did he do? He went public. He went to the marketplace. Secondly, what did he feel? Well, we see in verse 16, right there at the very top when we just read it. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. 
as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, this is a complex word. This isn't just he was angry. It's in there. It's in there. But he was provoked. When he saw what was going on, he was provoked. And this is important for us because I think sometimes, especially in our culture in 2020, we don't think it's right to be angry. We're like, hey, we, we should be disrupted by the world that we live in, people. He was provoked. He walked into Athens and he was like, are you kidding me? We should ha- there should be something in our heart. Not that we're not, di- like, I would never do that. But man, things are bad. Brokenhearted. Because this word provoked actually translates best back to the Old Testament. It's a unique word. It's not just angry or indignant, but that's part of the word. But it, but it translates best from kind of the, the, the Greek Old Testament to God's jealousy when he witnessed his people worshiping idols. Now that's disruptive right there. When you talk about God being jealous, I mean, people have a problem with that. I mean, you ever thought about that? Is God jealous? God is sinless and he's jealous. Isn't jealousy? Because we see jealousy in an impure way. Like I'm jealous of that guy. I don't like him because I'm jealous because he has something that I don't and I want it. That's our version of jealousy. But that's not God's jealousy. God's jealousy and why it burns and why he thinks, the way he's thinking about it is more like a parent that doesn't want, they're, they're jealous. They, they don't, don't go there. I want you with me. When you see your child running away, when you see your child rebelling and you're provoked and you're intense about it, because the opposite of love is, is, is not anger. I mean, we think that the, it's, it's love or anger. It's indifference. The opposite of love is indifference. I'm not gonna, I don't really care. That's the opposite of love. But Paul was frustrated. He was heartbroken. He was jealous that these people would see what he's seen, that their eyes would be open like his eyes were open. But that wasn't it. That wasn't the only thing. This pure jealousy that he felt, this pure indignation that he felt, guess what else was happening? Compassion. As we read this passage, he had compassion. Look at the way that he addresses them. He reasons with them. His speech is respectful. In verse 22, it says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He had compassion. He had respect. He had empathy. He didn't do what he would do in the temple with with the Jewish leaders, which he would open the Bible because there was a grounding for that. He just looks around, surveys the land and says, hey, I just wanna say, hey, you guys, I see that you're searching for something. I see that you're looking for something. I see you're trying to figure something out. I see that you're very spiritual people. He's getting on the ground with them and he's talking to them with compassion, respect and empathy. Yes, he was stirred up inside. Yes, there was indignation. Yes, he was distressed. Yes, he was provoked. But when he addressed them because he was doing it not just with truth, but he was doing it in love. And he was wide-eyed. He knew where he was. He wasn't in the temple with the Jews. He was in Athens. He was with the Epicureans. He was with the Stoics. He was with wise guys, guys that were smart, worldly smart. And he knew that he had to address them in a particular way. So he was indignant, but he was compassionate. Why was he so effective as he was doing this? Listen to this. Tim Keller says this about this passage. He says, if you are not filled with indignation or frustration, you will not have the courage to do what he did. Does that make sense? If, there is, if something's not stirred up inside you about the world that you live in being broken and lost and it's, there's indignation in that, then you're not gonna have any courage. You'll just be apathetic. 
But listen, he says, if you are only filled with indignation, you won't have the gentleness and respect so that people know that you care about them. We're not there to win the argument. We're there to win the people, right? That's the way that we approach the situation. The apostle Paul was like, hey, I could win any argument. I'm smart, but I'm here to lead people to the only truth that matters. I see that they're lost. I see that they're broken. I see that they need Jesus. I wanna lead them. Yes, every conversation you're gonna have with somebody, it's, gonna, it's awkward, right? It's not easy, but God can open our eyes to give us wisdom. Paul went public and he felt something, but there was a balance to what he felt when he went in because he loved them with a godly love. He wanted to see them and he loved God more than anything. And he wanted more and more and more people to worship Jesus. I mean, the best example, I mean, when you start thinking about how did, he, how did he go in with such a compass? I mean, you look at the life of Jesus. Jesus was amazing at this. Like the way that he dealt, dealt with, the, the, the compassion that he felt and the truth that he dropped. I mean, when in John chapter 11, he, Lazarus has died. A friend of his has died. And his other two friends, the two sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, you hear those names a lot. They were very upset. And so when Jesus showed up late, four days late, Lazarus is already dead and gone. Now he's eventually gonna raise Lazarus from the dead, but they don't know that. And they're frustrated because he could have come earlier. They knew he was a healer. They knew he could change things and he didn't show up. So Jesus rolls up on the scene. Mary comes out first and says, if you were here, he, he could have lived. If you were here, he, he could have, and, and what does Jesus do? Shortest verse in the Bible. Anybody? He wept. He tears. He wept tears. I mean, Jesus is the, is the, the banner on earth for truth, but in the moment, he cries. He knows what's gonna happen, but he has compassion. He feels what she feels. He's on the ground with her. But not a sentence later, same sentence comes out of Martha's mouth. If you were here, she rolls up, Lazarus would have lived. And what does he say to her? I am the life. He knew the heart of each individual. Truth and tears, truth and tears. That's what we need in every situation. We have to come with truth. We have to understand the world that we live in. But we've got to do it with compassion. There is truth in tears, both. How did Paul strike this balance? You think, well, I don't even know how to do that. How do I walk into every situation knowing that I've got to be compassionate and knowing that I can't abandon my faith in the process and just accept everything? How does that even happen? The cross was always his compass. In 1 Corinthians chapter two, he says to the Corinthians, and I, I used to just read that and go, well, that's, of course, that's what Paul did. I, I, I desire nothing else but to preach Christ and him crucified. He says, that's what I want burned into my soul. That's what I wanna carry with me wherever I go. Christ and him crucified, that's what I want. This is going to be my compass. The cross will be my compass forever. That is how I will enter every situation, no matter what it is. And it will be sufficient to lead me in the direction that I need to go to meet people with truth and tears. Why? Because the cross, only it's the only religion where you've got God's relentless pursuit of his holiness poured out on the cross with his wrath because of the justice that needed to be poured out for sin. At the same time, at the same place, in the same spot, his relentless and absolute aggressive pursuit of love that he gave his one and only son because he didn't want to lose us. Truth and tears, 
all right there, the compass of the cross. Are you starting to see it? Is the, are the, is the vision getting there? This is what the Apostle Paul did. It wasn't an A, B, C, this is how you evangelize. He always used the cross as his compass. God came with indignation against sin. God came with love, poured out his blood for you and me on the cross at Calvary. All right there, culminating at the cross, truth and tears. That's what he felt. What did he see? Now, what, what did it open? What did the cross open up for the Apostle Paul? So he went public. He felt truth and he felt tears. And he poured it out on the people of Athens. But what did he see? Because he needed to see in order to react to the situation that he was in. How did the cross lead him and open his eyes? Well, the word when it says, when he surveyed the land and he saw, that word's theoreo, which he saw something underneath. He didn't just see the surface. You know what he says to them? I see in every way that you're religious. There's a bunch of idols around. There's a bunch of stuff around. And if you go to Athens today, you're gonna see a lot of idols. You're gonna see, you know, Athena, you know, you're the God of beauty. You're gonna see Apollos, the God of art. You're gonna go there. There's gonna be, there's a, there, was, there was gods for everything. They had a God for the fishing industry. They had a God for the money industry. And they had, there was a God for everything. There was a, just a pantheon of gods in Athens. And if you go there today, you'll see them. But the Apostle Paul saw beneath all of it and he knew that there was this existential itch for every human being on planet earth. He knew that idolatry was the problem. He knew that there was something that they wanted satisfied, that they were reaching and stretching. For them, these individual gods, it was like, I'm not gonna tread on you, you're the god of the fishermen. I'm not gonna tread on you, you're the god of beauty. I'm not gonna tread on you, you're the artist. Y'all are over on this corner. And the Apostle Paul's coming to say, hey, there's a God, there's a Lord, there's a God and Lord over all. And in all, did you hear that during the reading? Everything. He comes in and he, and, he, and he sees that. He exposes the idols of the heart. I mean, it made me think of like, what he's trying to say is we make good things, ultimate things. He says that in Romans chapter one. We take the created things that are beautiful that God created and we make those our objects of worship rather than having them lead us up to see the creator himself. So he's doing the very thing that he preaches in Romans at Athens. He's saying, look at all of these things. You've made art your God. You know how artists make, make art their God? And they become beholden. They, I mean, they live and die by the critical review. I mean, you can talk to any famous musician and you get, they get later on in their life and they're exhausted. You know why? Because when they're doing their job well, they're enslaved to their art. When they're not doing their job well, they're condemned by their art because that's the way false gods work. When you serve them, you come, become enslaved to them. When you are successful in serving them, you, you are a slave. When you are not, they will condemn you. Ask any artist that reads a negative critical review. It crushes them. I love this quote by Pearl S. Buck. She won the Nobel Prize and the Pulitzer Prize. She was an amazing literary artist. And she, she sees this dilemma. Her parents were missionaries. She says, a human creature, think about this, the artist's dilemma. A human creature born abnormally, in, inhumanely sensitive. I think about our culture. We are inhumanely sensitive. Every word hits us a little bit harder these days. Inhumanely sensitive to them. A touch is a blow, a sound is a noise, a misfortune is a tragedy, a joy is an ecstasy, a friend is a lover, a lover is a God, and failure is death. Add to this 
add to this cruelty a delicate organism, the overpowering necessity to create, to create, to create. So without that creating of music or poetry or books or buildings or something of meaning, their very breath is cut off. They must create. They must pour out creation. But some strange strange, unknown inward urgency that they are not really alive unless they are creating. I mean, that's just the artist. I mean, you could apply that to everything. We make other things our God. And the Apostle Paul is creatively seeing that underneath everything, instead of saying, sinner, he's coming in and he's saying, hey, do you see that you're enslaved to your job? Man, that's gotta be painful. It seems like you are working 120 hours a week to get somewhere to do something. And has it really worked? Is it really satisfying your soul? I mean, he's dropping these truth bombs back at the Areopagus thousands of years ago. I mean, there is wisdom here in what he saw. He used his vision to see what was going on and react to it. What did he do? So we've got, where did he go? He went public. What did he feel? He, he was the banner of truth and love, right? Truth and tears. I love that statement. What did he see? He saw the idols. He saw what people were dealing with. He didn't just drop some truth about sin. He looked at what was underneath the sin and the idolatry of that sin. And what did he do? This is beautiful. In Acts chapter 17, 23, for as I passed along and observed your objects of worship, I also found an altar with this inscription. How creative. To the unknown God. They had a God, just in case none of their other gods got them covered. They got the unknown God. Just in case we, we were wrong about everything, we've got the unknown God here. We'll fill that in when we figure it out. Well, Paul says, I'll fill this, this one in for you. What there... That what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He's like, hey, you created all these. If God was really God, if there was a God that was worthy of serving, he didn't need you to create anything. I'm just making that point. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he goes on to quote even their own poetry. In him, you move and live and have your being. You know, we heard Shelley read that. That that wasn't originally in the Bible. It was 300 years before pagan poetry about Zeus. I mean, that's scandalous. He's using poetry about Zeus to talk about God. He's hijacking pagan poetry and glorifying God with it right there in the moment and leading them to Jesus. What's he doing? So what did Paul do? He's seen all these things. He's felt all these things. He's reacted. He's gone public. What's he doing? Guess what he's doing? He's doing what Jesus did for us. He's descending. He's meeting them exactly where they are. Just like Jesus didn't make us climb. He's not making you climb a ladder today. He's not making you walk and try to find him and find your way up to him, do enough good things, do enough church things, do enough stuff to make your way up to where he is. Guess what Jesus did? He left his scepter of authority, his throne. He left everything, came down to planet earth, to empathize and feel things the way that you feel them, all the way here into your brokenness, into your mess, to meet you where you are. The apostle Paul is meeting the Athens where they are. He's like, I understand brokenness. I was broken. I understand where you are with idolatry. I was an idolater. He gets down on their level. He doesn't, listen to this, this is scandalous. He's not opening the Bible like he does in the temple because that's what we want to do. Let me show you in Romans chapter five, the Romans road. There's people that are lost or not. The Bible has no leverage with them in the moment, even though it's breath and life for us and we know that it is. But he leads them 
with compassion and gentleness and truth. Man, is this good. To the way of Jesus. He's an image bearer of Christ in the way that he descends and meets them where they are. I don't know if this, this gets you excited, but it makes me think. I, I don't want to be a passive Christian in life just saying, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be a city on the hill with my life. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do churchly things. I'm going to, I'm going to try to have a better marriage than everybody else. I'm going to try to do the right thing. No, I want to speak boldly the word of God. I want to think as I move into every situation, as I go to the places around Jacksonville Beach, as I'm in the water surfing, as I'm out doing the things, what am I seeing? What am I feeling? Where am I going? And what am I doing when I'm going to those places? What does it look like for us? Man, that could change everything for us. Imagine a church who, who felt these things, saw these things, opened up by the picture of the cross of Jesus Christ because he gave everything, so will I. I will pour out my life. I'll pour out my life. And I just want to say this because I don't know where everybody is. I don't know where everybody is in this moment in the room, but God is here. Just like he was there in Athens with the Apostle Paul, he was leading by the power of his Holy Spirit people to Jesus. And that's what he's doing right now. And I don't know where you, maybe, maybe for the first time or maybe you're trying to figure out what it is that, that's going on here. And I'm just telling you, I, I wouldn't be doing this job if I didn't believe that Jesus is it that he is the answer, that he is the way to salvation, that he is what you're looking for. If you've, if, if, I don't know, and I just got this sense that somebody's here and things aren't going well for you. Like life is, is and I'm just telling you, that's the sin of this world. That's the brokenness that we live in. But there is a redeemer. There is a healer. There is a restorer. And I'm telling you, despite your circumstances, you can have joy. I would have quit this job a long time ago if there hadn't been truth, especially now. I mean, it's, you go through bumps and bruises as a pastor, but I believe it with everything that I am. And I just say, commit your life to God. He is calling. If you're listening, there's a reason. If you're sitting here, there's a reason. Surrender to him. Surrender your life to him. I'm telling you, you will never, ever regret it. And if you do, I'm telling you right now, if you're on the stream, email, email me directly. Derek at OCCJax.com say, my life has been changed and I'd love to talk to you. And I will, I'm not gonna send somebody to go talk to you. I will come to you. You can come here. We will sit down and we will celebrate together. We will cry together. We'll open up the truth of wor the word of God together and we'll talk about what God's doing in your life. And I can't wait to hear from you. If you're here and that's you, come right up to me at the end of the service and say, God is changing my life. Something has happened. Something has transformed. God has come in and I feel it. I sense it. I, I, I knew it from the moment we sang the first note. When Dave came up here, couldn't even stay in his shoes because he was so excited. I knew I needed something. I knew I had to have it. Maybe that's happened to you. I, I think it has to somebody. Come talk to me. Come talk to Dave. Talk to Beth, any of our staff. We'd love to talk to you. If you need prayer at the end of the service, come up here. I'll be up here. I'd love to pray for you. Do you need privacy? We've got plenty of rooms that we're not using right now. We'll, we'll, we can go back and pray for you. And God is so big. He is, he is moving. He is, Jesus is here. He is moving. He is moving. God, ignite this church. Let's stand. God, we love you. Just come by the power of your Holy Spirit to lead us, to move us out. We just see the cross. We see what you've put on display. We see who you are as God. And we want to be the people that follow you, that reflect your love.
Jesus' name.